Well, would you please uh, join with me in prayer? Father, uh, you have um, this season already been reminding us so regularly through the songs we sing, the words that we hear in your word, uh, that you are a God who is generous and gracious and who comes to us in our need. And we acknowledge again before you that we are needy, that we need you, we need your strength, uh, we need your wisdom. And so we pray again as we turn to your word that you would speak to our hearts, uh, strengthening us and drawing us to yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, so if you haven't figured it out already, uh, we are still kind of continuing in our series of Matthew, but for just three Sundays, the Sunday before Christmas Eve, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're kind of doing a flashback. We're going back to the very beginning of Matthew's story during this Christmas season to kind of remember how it began. And, um, the, you know, if you know the traditional church calendar, uh, actually Christmas is not just one day. Traditionally, you're supposed to celebrate Christmas for 12 days. Kind of wish we more leaned into that. That sounds like a good idea to me. So we're still technically in Christmas tide, but the day that comes after the 12 days of Christmas is known as Epiphany. And it's the day that celebrates what we are looking at in our passage this morning, the, the coming of the wise men to Jesus. That word epiphany, there's something about it that just like sounds nice. I like the sound of it. And, and, it's, and it's appropriately named. It's, it means revelation, God having shown something that once was hidden. And that's, and that's what we have in our passage. We have a revelation. And we also have a question, even as Jesus the King is being revealed, the question is, as people come to know, what will they do with this knowledge? When I um, was a kid, I watched entirely too much television, which meant I saw entirely too many commercials. And if you were growing up in the 80s and 90s like I was, you probably remember that there seemed to be, on, at least in these afternoons, always like public service announcement kind of commercials in the middle of it. Maybe you remember some of them. I remember there was distinctly R2-D2 and C-3PO telling me why I shouldn't smoke. Um, there was the, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs. Does any of you remember that with the egg? Um, but I feel like the most common ones were actually a cartoon G.I. Joe would do these ones where like some kid would be in peril, like maybe something like a, there's some sort of bad looking stranger that they're supposed to be careful with. And suddenly one of the G.I. Joe figures would come in and tell them, here's what you need to do. And the kid would respond, now I know. And every single time they would say, and knowing is half the battle. Um, it was cheesy. I even then realized it was cheesy, but even more so now, I just like look back on it and if, if knowing is half the battle, it's the easier half, isn't it? Because really, knowing on its own really doesn't get us very far. I mean, most of us probably know that we're healthier if we exercise and eat well, but it's what we do with that knowledge that's more important. Um, we know that it's good not to lose our temper, but that knowledge isn't enough. We know, some of us, that, that prayer is important, part of our lives, that God hears prayer. But again, it's not just knowing, it's what we do with that knowledge that will be the determining factor of whether that is truly useful for us. And I think that's what we're seeing here. This passage, Matthew invites us to say, once people know they are posed with a question, what will they do with that knowledge? And it's what they do that makes all the difference. 
In our passage, we see really two key figures, two key characters that are introduced for us from the very beginning of our passage. If you don't have your bulletins open or your Bibles open, I invite you to, because we're just going to be working through this familiar story and hopefully noticing things that maybe we haven't noticed before about what's going on here. And, and we're starting at the very beginning with this knowledge that after Jesus was born, we have the wise men from the east coming to Jerusalem, which is significant and surprising. Now, I just want to highlight from the outset, notice that this is after Jesus was born. I'm sorry to kind of ruin your nativity scenes, but the wise men did not come at the same time as the shepherds. They probably never met them. This is many months later. And actually, the more important moment to begin with is them saying, hey, and they came to Jerusalem, which would have been a significant deal. These wise men you know, sometimes it's translated magi, and that's probably better. Uh, magi were, I suppose you could say, very well-respected pagan astrologers. So in that day, um, it was a really common thing that as people were trying to find guidance for the future, trying to find directions for big decisions, they would look to the sky, they would look to the stars, and if Mars was ascendant or those kinds of things, that would help navigate their lives. And Beyond dispute, the experts at astrology were people from Persia. Were, were the, these magi from Persia. They were the ones who had been doing it for centuries. They were, they were the ones that everyone would go to if they wanted the absolute word on what the stars meant. They were very well respected. And these wise men, these magi, are people who have come from Persia. They have journeyed for days upon days, more than a hundred miles to get to Jerusalem. Now, they're well-respected, but we should also recognize they are, as I said before, pagan astrologers. Way back in Deuteronomy, God expressly forbids any form of divination, any form of trying to, whether it's looking at entrails or looking at tea leaves or looking at stars, trying to figure out the future because it's a form of superstition. It's a form of idolatry. God is saying he detests that because it turns people away from God to something else. And that's what these astrologers were. They were pagan astrologers. And so if we're trying to imagine what, what this is like, imagine if we just saw on the news that the Tibetan Buddhist monk, the Dalai Lama, was coming to Gary, Indiana. Like no other place in America, he had just come to Gary. That, that's kind of what's happening here. These respected, important figures are coming to Jerusalem? So they are coming to Jerusalem, and, and, and that in and of itself is already a significant moment. But then we, we sense attention. Notice how Matthew kind of sets things up for us, where it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, which is an old-fashioned way of saying, get this. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then Herod the king. Do you, do you sense that tension? Herod the king, where is the king? This is not something that Herod would have been terribly happy about. Literally, his, almost his entire life was all about getting to this point of being the king. He befriended strategically the right Roman leaders who, when they came to a place of success, finally he was able to get this role. He now became the king of the Jews. And ever since that, he's been doing everything he can to hold on to this power. 
more positively, he began making the, the, the temple, remaking it. Zerubbabel's temple was kind of shabby. So he said, let's remake it. And for like decades, this new, greater temple has been built with his name. It's Herod's temple. More um, sinisterly, any, any threat that he ever perceived to someone else who might take away his power, he killed, including his wife and three children. This is a man who was absolutely dedicated to being the king of the Jews. And so you can only imagine how it must have been when you know, Herod hears these rumors of these, and we don't know how many wise men it is, by the way. It could be three, but it's likely many more, of these magi slowly coming through Jerusalem. And people have heard rumors, and so you have all these people crowding on the city streets to, to watch these people as they're coming. And he hears that they want to come to meet with him, and he feels awesome. Like, finally, someone recognizes just how important he is. And so the Magi come into his room and, and to meet with him. And, and what is the question they ask? Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? And he realizes in that moment that they have zero interest in him. He's just an administrator in a backwater country to them. They're interested in something that seems to have cosmic significance that someone has been born. They have seen a star that has told them they need to come here because someone important, the king, has been born. And so in response to this, we're not surprised when we're told when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. I think that's an understatement. I think he was more than troubled. What's interesting to me is it's not just him. It says he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Herod was not a good king, by the way. Not many people liked Herod. But it seems like when they're hearing that these people were coming suggesting some other king has been born, it feels threatening. They don't like Herod, but they like change even less. What is this other king they're talking about going to do? So, what is even more surprising to me than the response of Jerusalem is what it says that Herod does next. So perhaps, you know, he, you know, he gathers the local experts. He gathers the, the, the biggest pastors in the area. He gathers the, the Bible scholars, and he, and he brings them around. And, and what's the question that he asks? He says, he, it says, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Christ, I think we've said before, means anointed one, means Messiah. It's speaking of the promised king, the king that God has for centuries said is going to come. And it's interesting to me that Herod in this moment understands what is happening. He realizes that the coming of these magi from far away, believing the king has come, they are recognizing or they're signaling that the end of waiting is at hand, that God is fulfilling his promises. They, he, Herod is trying to figure out where this king is by saying, tell me where the prophecies were. Where did the prophecies say this king would be born? He knows the Christ has come. And so the, the, the different scholars come and they remember from Micah. Micah was a contemporary of Isaiah many centuries ago. Micah saying, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's Bethlehem. Bethlehem, that would be remarkable. That's just, that's just 10 miles away. That's like if we wanted to make a trip to Ikea from here. It's that close. And so... And so 
Herod decides to bring the wise men back, and it tells us that he, he, he brings them back together in secret, which sounds kind of sinister, does it? doesn't it? Because it is. And, and he says, okay, um, I've gotten some information. Let's have an exchange of information. I'll tell you, and then you tell me. Here, let me tell you, it's Bethlehem. That's where you need to go if you're wanting to find this king. Now, how about you tell me when this king was born... And come back and tell me more about this so that I can worship him. So the wise men get this information and they are excited and they head off. They head off to Bethlehem. It's probably afternoon by the time they're leaving. So by the time they get to Bethlehem, which would have been like a three-hour walk, it's, it's nighttime. It's dark. And, and it says at that moment... Um, you know, he says, go in, so Herod says, go and search distant, uh, uh, diligently for him. But it says, when they, and behold, this is verse 9, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. The star they had seen, you know, many months earlier, they saw a star in the sky. And now as they're walking to Bethlehem, as they get to close to Bethlehem, the star they had seen suddenly appears in a different way, and it goes before them, it says. Now, here's where I think scholars get really confused sometimes. They, they're trying to figure out what's happening, and some scholars say, is this a comet? Or some other scholars are saying, is this a meteor? And I think they're missing the point. This is neither, this is a miracle. So, what we're supposed to, I think, remember is way back in the Old Testament, do you remember after God's people were freed from Egypt, when they're in the middle of the wilderness, it says, God went before them like is a cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night leading them. And we're supposed to understand in this moment the same thing is happening. That, that the star that, that once was just somewhere far off in the sky, in that moment somehow comes and draws near to the wise men and they see it right before them leading them and they follow it and they see it just hovering over this one house. And, and do you notice how they respond? They're recognizing this is not just anything. What does it say? It says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were really happy. Because... Suddenly things have changed where once they were just looking at stars and were thinking something important has happened, but now the star has come to them. God has, has come to them and has led them. And so when they see the star hovering above this house, I wonder what they're expecting to see. But they come and they see what we know they're going to see, which is just someone barely older than a girl holding someone who's probably not yet a toddler. And they come in, and seeing this child, they lay down their faces, give them gifts, and they worship him as their king. And there's, there's some real significance to this moment that we're supposed to understand because the nations have come to worship the Christ. If you know your Old Testament, you might remember how way back, long ago, when the world essentially has been fractured in pieces and nations have been spread throughout the land, God speaks to Abraham and says, through you, I'm going to fix this world. Through you, through your offspring, I'm going to bless all the nations. And then later on, when, when David's son, Solomon, is king, you begin to see hints of this as the queen of Sheba comes and sees what God has done and praises God, and we're waiting for this to be fulfilled. And then, in this moment, what we see is the nations coming and laying down before Jesus 
and worshiping God's appointed king. And what I especially love about this moment is how it is that they came to find Christ. They came through their own superstition. What led them here was their pagan beliefs in astrology. And, and you might think that God would say, I am definitely not going to do anything with that because I don't want to endorse something that is clearly not of me. But that's not what actually happens. God somehow arranges the stars to lead them to act. And then when they come close, he actually draws near to them in a star and guides them so that they can come to see Jesus. Do, do you see the generosity, the kindness of God in this moment. He does not treat any of us as we deserve. You might feel sometimes to not to feel like praying is not even worth it because if your prayer is prayed, it will be half-hearted. God will answer half-hearted prayers. You might feel like your, your following of God, if, you, if you're seeking to follow Jesus, it's going to look so poor. And God will answer and will be faithful to you even as you are faithless to him. God is so much more generous and kind and giving than we can possibly imagine. And we see this here as he takes these pagan astrologers and he leads them home to himself as they are sitting at the feet of Jesus as this scene ends. Now, I want to just back up for a moment and, and, and say that, that before these wise men left, we were at kind of a turning point. There were two groups of people. There was Herod and there was the wise men, and they had exactly the same information. They both had, if you will, the gospel. They knew that the Christ had been born. They knew where it was. They knew when it was. They had the question to answer that all of us have, the ones that we have to answer every Christmas and throughout the year. What do you do now that you know that Jesus has been born into this world? And we see one of the answers here in the wise men. They come and they worship and they rejoice. But as I said before, there is a second character that we're supposed to follow, and that is the character of Herod. And we, we see that his response to that same gospel, that knowledge that Christ has come in the fulfillment of scriptures, looks very different. If we were to keep on going with our passage to the, the second half, which we'll be looking at more closely next week, we will notice that there are two different visions that happen that thwart what Herod is wanting. First, there's a dream that goes to the wise men, telling the wise men when they leave to not leave back through Jerusalem, but to go elsewhere. And that way, Herod doesn't know exactly where this baby has been born. And then secondly, Joseph and Mary. Joseph specifically gets a vision telling him, you need to hurry up and leave to Egypt. Because Herod is seeking to destroy Jesus. Because in case we didn't pick it up the first time, Herod wasn't exactly serious when he said, so that I may come to worship this king. He wanted to know where Jesus was so that he might kill him. But if you know the story, you know that this lack of information wasn't enough to stop Herod from doing something, that there is something horrific that takes place next. He knows it's Bethlehem. He knows that it's probably sometime in the last couple of years that this baby has been born. And so since he never hears from the wise men where it was, he decides the only way to keep his throne is to kill every child two and under in the town of Bethlehem. Now, just the terribleness of that moment aside, 
just stepping back, I just want us to ask even just a more fundamental question. What is Herod thinking he is doing in this moment? He has already recognized that this, what's happening here is something that's divine, something that's been foretold for centuries. Does he think that somehow he is going to be able to stop God? He's 70 probably at this point. It's only going to be a number of months, not even years, before he dies. He has to know deep down that there's a futility of what he's trying to do. Perhaps it's even occurred to him that not too long of a time, he is actually going to face his creator face to face. And yet, to him, there is something so terrifying, so threatening about the idea that God is raising up a king who is not him that he can't do anything but resist him with all of his might. And in doing so, he kind of joins the hall of fame of bad guys in the Bible. I mean, this is actually a fairly consistent theme if you think about it. Do you remember way back in Exodus, what does Pharaoh do? When Pharaoh recognizes that God's people are being blessed and growing, he starts killing every male boy to try to stop God. That does not work out well for him. Or, or you might think a little bit later of Saul, Saul, as Saul hears that God has, has appointed David to be the Christ, when he feels that he, he is threatened by that and he does everything he can to stop David and to kill David, that does not work out well for Saul. And Herod is joining in that line of anti-God, anti-Christ, we might say, trying to thwart God's purposes, and it will not turn out well for him either. But before we just start thinking, oh yeah, those are a bunch of bad guys, we should recognize that Matthew is actually telling us a more personal story. That it's not just the Herod, the Saul, the Pharaoh that does this. That it's, well, it's a lot of us. Because now we're about halfway through the story of Matthew. And, and the story that Matthew is telling us is not just the, you know, like that Herod is the rejecter. But we see person after person rejecting Jesus. We were just looking at chapter 11, and, and right after there, in chapter 12, there's this moment where, where this person with a shriveled hand comes, and the Pharisees are just waiting to see Jesus do something wrong, because it's the Sabbath. And Jesus speaks and tells this person with a shriveled hand to open up his hand, and it's healed. And there is this moment of epiphany. There's a revelation. This is, this is God come to this world. And what does it say? It says right after, and the Pharisees plot to figure out how they are going to kill Jesus. And by the time we get to the end of Matthew, it's not just the Pharisee. It's the Pharisee leading a whole bunch of crowds saying, crucify him, crucify him. And here's what I want us to understand from this moment. It's not because they didn't know. If you think someone like Jesus is just a phony, a fraud, a nutcase, you just kind of laugh him off. You shrug your shoulders. You, you, you expose him, but you don't you don't gnash your teeth in anger at him. No, it's precisely because they do know. In fact, the more that they realize who Jesus is, the more that they see him doing these things that only God's appointed king could do, the more angry and threatened they become because they understand something. And that is, as glorious as Jesus might be, he also does not accept a half-hearted obedience. 
He is the king. And because he is the king, he demands complete submission to him. And that's threatening. And so what Matthew is warning us, even right now at the beginning of our book, is he's, he's basically letting us know, I'm about to give you this revelation. I'm about to show you the king. That's what Matthew is seeking to do throughout this book. And you need to worry, you need to be ready about the possibility that as you see this king, his reality is going to be so threatening that you will want to join Herod and the Pharisees and others in pushing him away. Sometimes reactions to Jesus can be violent. We know of persecution in places such as China and other places where Christianity, what God is doing, is enough to cause people to try to stop that. But, but more often than not, that's not how it looks like. More often than not, it's when we hear and begin to see who Jesus is, we are tempted to try to keep him in some small part of our heart and, and maybe recognize a little who he is, but then to kind of shut it off and to let it not touch the rest of our lives because we don't want to have to deal with it. And in doing that, we are joining in everyone else who has always sought to reject the king. And it does not turn out well. But Matthew doesn't just have a warning for us. He has an invitation. He wants us to see the kind of God that God is, the God who, who takes these pagan astrologers who are going completely the wrong direction and he leads them to Jesus. And it is not about where they began, but it's about where they end up. We're meant to see we have a God who is kind, a God who is welcoming, a God who wants people to come home to him. The passage we looked at a couple weeks ago summarizes it really well, that the God that we have speaks to us through Christ when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon me. Learn from me. For you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This morning, we have been given this knowledge of who Jesus is. He is the king. And we're being asked a question, what will we do with that? Will we keep him far away? Or will we let him be our king? I invite you to spend just a moment with me in quiet reflection. Here's, here's an opportunity for us to come to God and to bring whatever we have to him, whatever guilt we have, whatever ways we have kind of turned ourselves from, or even just the feeling of hopelessness we're feeling perhaps at times in this morning, and come to him and acknowledge it and allow him to express once again his kindness and his forgiveness to us. So please, let's spend a minute or two in, in silent confession, and then I'll lead us in prayer in a short time.